Thank you, Chase. That is a whole lot of names that he had to read off. So thank you for, for doing that for me. I appreciate it. Welcome, everybody. So glad to be here with you this morning on this snowy Colorado day. In fact, I'm, I'm actually really impressed that you're all here. I was telling Chase before service started, I, I feel like it was going to be a COVID kind of day where there's like three people here and 99% of people are watching online. So, so good job. A little round of applause to you for being here. That's awesome. So for those of you that don't know, I have two wonderful kids, Malachi and Amara. Uh, Malachi, who just turned seven, and Amara, who just turned six. And anyone who has kids or has been around kids, you know that sometimes they can say some of the funniest things. There's a bunch of kids in here right now, and originally I was going to ask if there's any kids that say funny things in here, and I, I thought better of that. I was like, who knows what's going to come out. But before service started, I talked to Sky and Zaley Bays, and I was like, okay, hey, guys, give me something funny that you said. And they're like, I don't know. And then Zaley goes, I just can't remember anything. And I was like, ha, there it is, right there. That is funny. Perfect. With that, we know that some of these things that kids say can be super funny, but also sometimes they hit just a little bit too close to home. There was one afternoon a few years ago that Jen and I were hanging out at the house. It was just a normal day. And we were sitting there thinking, huh, it's been, it's been quite a while since we've seen our, our little precious daughter, Amara. I wonder where she could be. So we're looking around, knowing there's no way she left the house, so she's got to be here somewhere. But then there's that little twinge of, well, maybe, maybe she got stuck somewhere. Maybe she climbed in somewhere she's not supposed to be. Maybe. And then all of a sudden, I hear this little rustling in our pantry. Huh, okay. So I go open the door, and there's my daughter standing there staring at me with those big old bowling ball eyes, chocolate over her face. Well, come to find out, she went into the pantry, climbed up the shelves to get to the candy she was not supposed to have. I was like, Amara, what's going on? And with those big eyes, she looked at me and said something that was hilarious, but later on realized the depth of what she was actually saying. She looked at me and said, Daddy, Satan made me do it. It's like, what? Well, and so I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to compose myself here, like covering my face not to laugh. But then later on, realizing that we needed to have a heart-to-heart, -heart, letting her know, sweetie, Satan did not make you do anything. You made the choice to eat that candy when you knew that you weren't supposed to. You were tempted and gave in to the temptation. So yes... Say it might be filling your mind and your head with lies, tempting you to go against what mom and dad said to do, which is disobeying God. But in your decision to fall into the trap and disobey, Satan did not make you do it. But sweet girl, we need to look to the one who overcame Satan. We need to look to the one who overcame temptation and gives us clear insight on how to battle like he did looking to the one who could accomplish what humanity could not. We don't fight temptation well. We want to assign blame. Just like my daughter failed in the face of temptation, giving into that candy, blaming Satan. Just like Israel, who failed over and over in the wilderness, blaming everyone but themselves. We fall and we fail. 
But this morning, we're going to get to see the truth of the one in the wilderness who didn't fail in the face of temptation. The one who came to restore what was broken. Jesus, who could accomplish what humanity never could. Who came to this vile place to bring us back. There is, as you just heard, there is so much to this passage that we're about to go through. There's so much good information, but I want you to see more than anything what I want you to walk away with, what I want you thinking about leaving here, what I want you thinking about on Monday and through the week is Jesus, who is the true and better Adam, the true and better King, and the true and better Israel. In Adam's failure in the face of temptation, Blaming Satan, blaming God, blaming Eve, humanity was plunged into darkness. Jesus brings light to all humanity by overcoming the darkness. In the full royal bloodline Jesus comes from, there's only sinful people consistently giving into temptation, pointing blame. Jesus is the true perfect king. He's the one that restores the royal line by perfectly doing what no one in his genealogy ever could. Israel, God's chosen people, fail over and over, like I just said. In the wilderness, they're tempted, they're failed. Jesus in the wilderness fulfills what Israel could not. The true and better Adam, the true and better king, true and better Israel. Seeing this Jesus who, unlike Adam who failed, his line that failed, the Israelites that failed in the wilderness, unlike us who failed daily, is the faithful son of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the breath in our lungs, being able to come here to worship together. God, thank you for every single person that's here. I pray, God, as we all step into this place, different things happening in our lives, some good, some bad, some indifferent, God, I pray that you would come and speak to us this morning. God, I pray that through your word, you would open our eyes to see you. Jesus, that we would see you for who you truly are. Just love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't yet, go ahead, open up your Bibles to Luke 3, starting in verse 23. And just for all of you, I made the decision to not reread the genealogy, so you're welcome. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, even though... It's long and tedious. Again, thank you, Chase, for reading that. With some names that no one can pronounce, this genealogy is extremely important. The significance of the genealogy Luke presents has a bunch of different layers to it, each one pointing to some pretty deep stuff, bringing out the fulfillment of so many different Old Testament prophecies, seeing in detail the fulfillment of the Messiah coming through the line of Adam Abraham, and David that was prophesied from Genesis forward. But I think the real drive behind Luke putting the genealogy where he does, right after Jesus' baptism and right before Jesus' temptations, is summed up in the three simple phrases that we talked about right at the beginning. Jesus being the true and better Adam, the true and better king, and the true and better Israel. Adam is representation of all humanity. Adam failed. Jesus came to restore humanity, the true and better Adam. 
Abraham was the father of Israel, God's chosen people, who again fail. But where they fail, Jesus succeeds. The true and better Israel. David, the king who Jesus would come through, is a sinner like all the rest. But Jesus is perfect. The true and better king. As I said before, there are so many connections that can be made from this genealogy that Luke inserts here. But the connection of David, Abraham, and Adam with the fulfillment associated is the real thrust. Seeing Jesus being directly connected to full humanity in his baptism and in his lineage, still fully God, and in the temptations in the wilderness that we're about to walk through, Jesus begins fulfilling what humanity could not in our sin. We see Jesus, fully man, fully God, fulfilling what man could not. But before we uh, deep dive into that, I want to break down a couple areas with this genealogy that sometimes can be a stumbling block for some people. There's areas in Luke's extreme detail that can be super confusing when we start looking at it. So verse 23 starts off with typical Luke-style writing, giving us historical accuracy to ensure the reader knows the account's true. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. As we spoke about last week, in the context of timeline, Jesus was born before Herod the Great's death, putting the beginning of his ministry, him being 30 years old, as it says, around 28 AD, which is the same timeline that we saw with John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. So with that understood... Us, the reader, knowing that we can trust the account that he's presenting, Luke goes straight into the line of Jesus with a really peculiar phrase next to Joseph, as was supposed. And I, as I started researching this, I was like, huh, maybe is that in the original text, like parentheses, as was supposed? And lo and behold, it is. It is in the original text. But in the literal translation of this, it means legally calculated, legally calculated. And it's an important piece to this genealogy because it points to Joseph not being the blood father of Jesus. And, the, and that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth. That little M was supposed puts those two pieces together. Joseph is not Jesus' blood. Mary had a virgin birth, which is making a bold statement. Joseph was not his blood, but was legally his father. It was a legal thing. Last week, as we were going through the details of that passage, we see the people were taken for a loop when this upside-down proclaimer, John the Baptist, took them down to, took him to an upside-down place, which was the Jordan River, where their hearts were being prepared, hearing this king that's coming for all people. And then they were told, it's not about land, it's not about water, Guess what? There's an alignment with Gentiles in this baptism. And also, it's not about blood or genealogy. It's funny that this would be what John was proclaiming. It's not about this. And then all of a sudden, Luke goes straight into genealogy. Good old Luke in his writing. So good. And right here, we start seeing the fulfillment of the Old Testament coming to life. But again, in the most upside down way, Jesus is not Joseph's blood. The people were probably expecting that to be the case. Joseph married Mary, which made Jesus a legal descendant of David, or legally calculated. Now, this fact of Jesus' legal connection to David has created a lot of chatter over the years. 
you might even be asking the same question. Well, if, if it's not blood, hold on, wait a second. So if Jesus isn't blood related to Joseph, even though it's legal, how can you say that he's actually from the line of the king? Now comes the really fun part. I love history. It's so cool. Jesus actually has a direct bloodline to David. It's Mary's bloodline. It's something that a lot of people don't actually know. So the book of Matthew also starts off with the genealogy. But weirdly, from David to Joseph has none of the same names as Luke's genealogy. So when you start to dig deep into, into, into this genealogy, you'll see that Matthew is lining out Joseph's genealogy, and Luke here is lining out Mary's genealogy. So that's pretty cool. What's even more cool is that when we put it all together, Jesus is not only legally connected to the king from Joseph, but also has a direct bloodline to the king. Jesus is the one true king. With this reminder of Jesus' full deity, full kingship, and full humanity, we're thrust directly into the next segment Luke brings to play, that being the temptations of Jesus. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And they, when they were ended, he was hungry. So prior to detailing out three of the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, we're given five insights about what we're going to see in the temptations. Five different insights. Luke transitions us directly back to Jesus being baptized, and it restarts the story here. We have the baptism, this super long genealogy, and then it's like, boom, right back into it. He restarts the story topically, like he likes to do, with Jesus returning from the Jordan, but not just returning. It says he was full of the Holy Spirit, which is insight number one. He's full of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that will give Jesus the power in his full humanity to overcome what he's about to face. And the Spirit then, it says, leads him into the wilderness. The wilderness is insight number two. As we're going to see, this wilderness is, is really, it's key to the account we're going to be talking about. Because it's a direct parallel to the wilderness that the Israelites entered into after leaving Egypt. They left Egypt, were heading into the promised land in the wilderness where they would travel for 40 days, being tempted, failing, and then being denied access to the promised land for 40 years. Jesus enters the wilderness for 40 days, like Israel, which is the third insight that Luke gives us. 40 days. Leading us to the fourth insight, temptation. From the time I was a little kid, hearing the story in Sunday school, I always thought Jesus was out in the desert for 39 days, then on day 40, Satan just pops out of nowhere, and he's like, hey, Jesus, I'm here to tempt you. That's what I always thought as a kid. But what's fascinating about the way that Luke writes this is that it's a present tense when talking about the 40 days. So really, it was Jesus walking into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, with Satan tempting him the entirety of his time out there, going into the three temptations. 
And these three temptations, they seem to be the climax of the 40 days. That's why they're highlighted. With insight number five, fasting. Jesus fasted the whole time. So talk about intense. You have wilderness, 40 days, Satan tempting the whole time, and no food. That's a whole lot that's happening. Something cool about the fact that Jesus fasted is that then, as is today, fasting is utilized to not only focus on God, but also to trust God. Two very real things Jesus would face in these temptations. So in these insights, we see the Holy Spirit. We see the wilderness. We see temptation. We see 40 days and we see fasting. These five things are going to help put together the account that Luke brings to us. Moving us to chapter 4, verse 4. Sorry, starting in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So in the first temptation, Luke marches right into the parallel of Israel in the wilderness. Satan, knowing Jesus is hungry, tells him, just come on, Jesus, just use your power. Make food for yourself. If you really are God, come on. And Satan, being the father of all lies, he knows the sneakiest and trickiest ways to tempt us. But this one, really, honestly, it's not that sneaky at all. It's just knowing how we as humans operate. We Americans, we go 10 minutes without food and we think that we're starving. We think that, oh, no, this, this is what I need to be satisfied. I need more food. I haven't done it in a couple years, but for a long time, I would take students on a week-long backpacking trip in the woods. And the amount of times I heard the phrase, I'm so hungry, I could die. Or, like, I can't, I can't go on. I need food. Can we please just stop? Like, it, it, that was, like, five minutes after we had lunch, too. And they're already, like, complaining about not having food. It, it was constant. Knowing how easily we as people can be distracted by hunger, Satan uses this tactic. And he definitely is trying to use it on Jesus after he's not eaten anything for 40 days. It's like, come on, Jesus, use your power, make some bread. Taking us to this parallel between Israel and the temptation, like I talked about. It takes us to Numbers 11, 4 through 6. This is Israel in the wilderness. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, the cot that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but manna to look at. We can also see in Exodus 16, 2 through 3, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the, hand of e in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, Israel. So the people, after leaving Egypt, headed toward the promised land. And not only complained about food, but didn't trust God that he would provide for their physical needs. And in that, were not satisfied in God. Since their stomachs weren't satisfied, they weren't satisfied in God. This temptation Jesus, Satan throws at Jesus brings to light not only Israel's failure, 
but the propensity that we have as humans to not find our satisfaction in God. Knowing that even without food, we should trust him. Jesus throws it right back at Satan, using God's word to not only defeat this temptation, but fulfill what Israel could not. Jesus responded with, verse 4, and Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So the response from Jesus was a direct quote from Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 4. Using this incredible passage to combat the devil, Jesus beautifully responding that in the face of hunger, he's sufficient because of his relationship with the Father. It's not just about physical bread. Yes, we need food to survive, but we're given the reminder this morning that we don't live on bread alone. And we know here today that we can be satisfied and sufficient in Christ. He is the true bread of life. The only one that we actually need at the end of the day. Even if the physical world around us falls apart, he is still there. He is enough for us. Israel gave in to not trusting God for their physical desires and not trusting God for bread and not being satisfied in God knowing that through it all, he's what we need more than anything else. The one who will sustain us. But Jesus perfectly, like I said, combats this, knowing and reminding us, again, man does not live on bread alone. Stepping into the next temptation, Luke lists, starting in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan's temptation here is one that hits humanity at its core. And that's through power and worship. We humans, we want power. We want as much control as we can. And maybe it's not in the sense of trying to rule the world, but simply ruling our own lives. We want control. And from that control, we're built to worship. The question is, what? In the wilderness, Israel was tempted in the same way, but failed miserably. In Exodus 32, 1 through 15, the people were left to their own devices when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God, and in their desperate need to have control over their situation and to worship, they created a golden calf to take place of God, failing in their temptation. But Jesus, the true and better Adam, King, and Israel, when posed with this same temptation, responds very differently. Verse 8. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus goes right back to quoting scripture from Deuteronomy 6.13. You should only serve God and only worship him. When Israel failed, Jesus restored, fulfilling what they could not. This temptation of Satan through Jesus is one we here in 2023, we face every day just like Israel in the wilderness, with a golden calf, is there anything that you have in your life that you put over God? 
Because we can put our jobs, we can put our relationships, even our phones, we can put above God. Giving in to the temptation to give your all to something other than the one who truly deserves your all. It's crazy how easy it is. Even the way that we see our kids and our spouses, do we idolize them? Are we subconsciously worshiping something or someone other than God? And in our failure, like Israel, we have to look to the only one that perfectly accomplished what we could and cannot. With the last explicit temptation, continue in verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan, being the crafty devil that he is, takes Psalm 91, 11 through 12, and massively twists it, trying to get Jesus to cave. I think a piece to this Satan was trying to get Jesus to fail in is not just testing God, as we're going to see, but I think it was also a piece to it was pride. Jesus is hungry, he's tired, he's probably sick of the devil, and now he's saying, come on, man, come on, just prove it. Prove it, throw yourself off here. Those angels, they'll grab you. It's no big deal, right? You can do it, you have the power to do it. And in his humanity, it, it must have been so hard not to just throw Satan off the cliff and call it a day. But instead, Jesus, again, fulfills what Israel could not Exodus 17, two through three. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Over-exaggerate much, Israel? Israel didn't trust God, but not just didn't trust him. Like they were called to do. They tried to test him to get what they wanted. Come on, God, you're, you're not going to provide. We're going to die because you won't provide for us. They were doubting God, leading to demanding God to show himself. Failing, crashing, and burning with yet another temptation. But then this is also another area that we deal with temptation today. Because when seeds of doubt arise in our minds, which happens to all of us at times, what do we do with those seeds of doubt? Because what we do with it is what teeters it one way or another with that temptation. Are we in those times of doubt going back to scripture, going back to truth, back to what we know we can stand on being our salvation in Christ or do we let that doubt fester, which can lead to lack and satisfaction in God, which can lead to demanding God to prove something to you in your doubt, not believing who he says he is, so you demand more. There have been so many times in my life I've given into this. When life is hard, when things aren't going the way I want, that doubt can settle in with me wanting to demand a sign. There was one time, a few years ago, life was, there was just a lot happening. 
I felt like work wasn't going well. There was just, uh, I, I didn't feel like God was with me. And so in my doubt and in my frustration, I was sitting at a park staring at a tree. And I'm looking up and I was like, come on, God. I, I know if, if you're really here, make that leaf fall off that tree right now. I'm sitting there staring at that leaf. Come on, come on, make it happen. And guess what? The leaf did not fall off the tree. <laughs> That doesn't mean he wasn't there, but in my doubt, I was tempting God to do something. Prove yourself, God, in my doubt. We're all broken and failed. And we have to look to the only one, the true Adam, the true king, the true Israel. Where humanity fails, Jesus succeeds. He fulfills and restores. Taking us to verse 12. Jesus responds, and Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, again, is quoting scripture, this time from Deuteronomy 6.1, combating the devil's misquoting of scripture with scripture. Israel gave in to temptation, temptation testing God in their doubt, demanding. We again see Jesus' fulfillment by refusing to force God to show a sign that he is there. God's to be trusted. From these three temptations, we see the one who accomplished it all and can empathize with us because he experienced it all. Verse 13 says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So this last verse in this section is, is a really good reminder. It's a reminder that not only did Jesus go through these specific temptations, but also in Jesus' entire ministry, Satan continued to try to get Jesus to fail. Utilizing opportune times. And we don't know the exact extent of it. We have examples where we see these temptations, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is like, God, if, if there's a way, take this cup from me. But does he give into that temptation? No. Temptation is not a one and done kind of thing in this life. Satan is always looking for opportune moments in our lives to strike. But we have the one we can look to. The one who does understand, but who did it perfectly. The one who lived out that difficult life, being constantly attacked, constantly insulted and abused, living it out without a single blemish. And he did this for you. Jesus went through those temptations to fulfill what we could not. And he did it for you. He lived it out perfectly, being an obedient, selfless servant all the way to the cross. Changing the course of humanity forever. I have something I want you to think about. If the genealogy ended at Levi, we as humanity would still be lost in the utter abyss of death and darkness. If Jesus wouldn't have been the true and better Adam, if he wouldn't have been the true and better king and the true and better Israel, we would be lost. The one that we look to is the one that we desire not to give into temptation for because we want to honor him with what he came to do and did. 
Falling into these types of temptation was a mistake Israel made all the time. But Jesus, bringing the upside down kingdom, didn't repeat these mistakes. He overcame Satan's attacks. Jesus understood the nature of temptation and acted on what scripture says through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the one that we look to. Unlike ancient Israel, Jesus' response to temptation was based on his desire to please the Father more than himself. His response, take it full circle to the whole reason that he came. In Jesus' fulfillment of Israel's failure in the 40 days in the wilderness, restoring what was broken through their sin. Church family, like my precious little Amara, who was a dirty little sinner when she ate that candy, like Israel and Adam and David and the entire line of all of our genealogies, they did and we fall and fail. And because of this, we're broken sinners that desperately need a savior. Jesus is the one we look to. And he didn't just leave us high and dry. He didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. It's not by us or through us it's possible to overcome these temptations, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Given to us the day that we put our faith and trust in Christ's perfect work on the cross. The reason Jesus left the helper was because he knew we couldn't do this on our own. Temptation is a very real part of our lives every day. And with the example of Jesus, who we look to, and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome for the glory of God. You can't say the devil made me do it. But look to Jesus in the failure. As you look to Jesus this morning, you might be thinking about a certain temptation that you've given into recently. And normally I would toss out some very real examples of the ways that we give into temptation or maybe things that you've given into this week. But since it's fifth Sunday and all of our precious children are in here, I'm just going to say fill in the blank, dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank in your mind of the things that tempt you, the things you've given into. And I want to remind you this morning, believer, that if this is you and you have fallen into sin, if you let temptation take hold, know that in your brokenness, you are still loved. Know that Jesus, who gave it all for you, experienced every temptation. But in those temptations, he showed us his perfection. That through him, there is victory. You're not trapped in your sin. Scripture says in John 8, the son of, when the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. As I said last week from Romans 8, there's no condemnation in Christ. But when set free from sin by putting your faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross, there's a new life. There's new desires. There's a new heart desiring to follow the perfect example of Christ who overcame the true and better Adam the true and better king, true and better Israel. 
Jesus, the one we look to this morning, fulfilled what Adam, David, Israel, and each of us could not. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for this day. God, again, thank you for your love and your kindness towards us when we deserve nothing. Jesus, thank you for coming to this place, living the perfect life, dying the perfect death, and rising again so that we could be back in the right relationship with God if we put our faith and trust in you. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank you for loving us enough to experience what you did to rescue us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.